This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. All right, we are live. Today, I am with Matthew Dunn, who is recommended by friend of the show and former guest, Gavin Stone. I think that Matthew and Gavin traveled in the same circles at one point or another. How are you doing today, Matthew? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on your show. It's great to have you. Now, you are with or were with MI6, I guess some would argue. I have a lot of viewers who say that if you're CIA, you never leave the CIA. You're CIA for life. So some of them would probably say that you're probably MI6 for life, especially if you have to turn in your books for approval or things like that. There, there's going to be some lingering tentacles. But, yeah, um, I, I'd agree with that. So I think it does um, it lingers, um, and also it's, it's um, uh, we might come on to it in terms of the recruitment into MI6 and the selection process. But um, to a large extent, it's in your DNA anyway. I mean, they select you because you're a certain type of character. So, um, yeah, that, the, the the type of individual who inhabits my world, it's um, it's a lifelong occupation. Well, let's just jump right onto that for a second. What type of character are you seeking? Now, I imagine you're kind of in a weird spot because isn't your job to be both unnoticed but yet attractive to a subject? Yeah, and obviously when I when I comment on this, I'm commenting <clears throat> from the perspective of MI6, British intelligence, the, MI6 being the equivalent of uh, the CIA. Um, but in, in terms of what they're looking for, I mean, the selection process is very intensive, as you would expect. There's numerous tests, interviews, uh, role-play exercises, etc. in terms of the selection process. But ultimately, what it comes down to is they are looking for a particular type of person. Uh, and that's very difficult to actually define. Um, I remember... Some years in to, to working in MI6, having a chat with um, our head of recruitment, who himself was a senior operational officer, very experienced. Um, and I was asking him, you know, look, what is it you're looking for in terms of new entrants, you know, people like me years ago, etc. And he said very similar. He said that you know we do all the checks and balances, all the all the tests, etc. But ultimately, we're looking for a particular breed of animal. Um, and he said, uh, very often, it's a case of you'll see somebody walk into a room, one of the applicants, and you'll think, yes, it's that person. So very sort of almost intangible sort of, um, um, assessment made there. But it is an odd one because, as you say, you're looking for somebody who can work in the shadows. But also there is a very strong component of looking for somebody who's got the the powers of persuasion, the sort of the follow me type of persona, the type of person who can change things around them. Um, so it's not just the gray man skulking in the corner of the room. It's, it's much more than that. Okay. And I, I was wondering about that. Now, um, I've had multiple CIA agents on here too. And I'm curious about differences, differences between you. Like one with the CIA 
I was under the impression before I had anybody on that everyone was either an analyst or was um, an operative, I guess you would say. But then I found out that there are analysts, there are operators, and then there's another branch called security. And they kind of help operatives out, keeping them safe somewhat, but also protecting different sites and things. Is it something similar with MI6? Yes, um, very similar. There's, there's um, within MI6, and this is train confidence. Is there's um, an entire division which is called security, um, and they are staffed by analysts, but also senior operatives, um, field operatives, um, and their role is precisely as you mentioned in the context of the CIA, which is to um, analyze <coughs> a potential operation, as we call them in in Britain, mission, as you'll call them in in America. Um, before it before it it launches, um, and and they're independent and uh, they're independent from the operational teams, and they they have uh, they have the power of veto. So back in the day, young exuberant operators like me would be chomping at the bit to get out there and do something, and you get the older, wiser heads saying, "Hang on a minute," you know, and they thoroughly um, vet the operation as much as they could, uh, at least. So it sounds like a, a very comparable. Um, structure in that respect. Okay, can we talk about the charter too? Because one thing I was curious about is with the CIA, they're not supposed to operate domestically in the United States. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't do it. That doesn't mean they haven't gotten caught. That doesn't mean they don't uh, bend the rules. But legally speaking, by charter and Congress and everything else, they're not supposed to operate within the United States domestically. Yeah. How is that with MI6? Is it MI5 only domestic, or does MI6 have the ability to operate both domestically and foreign? Um, so it's slightly different setup legally uh, and politically in the UK, but but nevertheless, the distinctions are, are similar. Um, MI5, as you mentioned, is our domestic um, security service. Um, so their remit, their focus is very much internal. It, it, it is to protect the shores of Great Britain. Um, mm-hmm. Occasionally they will work overseas, but primarily it's UK focused. Um, and that's their bag. Um, and MI6 does not intrude on that. Um, but obviously there are overlaps in grey areas, um, particularly in, in terms of for example, the work that I did, um, there were no barriers, for example, to me, for me to meet a foreign agent, as we call them in Britain, asset in America, on UK soil. I could do that quite easily. Um, so technically, that was me working on UK soil, um, but that was permitted. Okay, interesting, because we I actually have had FBI intelligence people, too. And they would do it on the U.S. soil. They would be meeting the yeah. agent or doing the recruitment domestically. And and the other separation for FBI and CIA is that FBI is supposed to be law enforcement yeah. versus CIA is not supposed to be yeah. law enforcement anyway, like arresting or anything of that sort. Yeah, so, yeah, so exactly, exactly the same slight difference. The, the comparison between MI5 um, our security service and the FBI. There are many similarities, but the, the one th- difference is that MI5 does not have the power of arrest. Um, so if there was a situation, as there often is in the UK, where it's an MI5 operation that ultimately leads to an arrest, 
they would then have the arrest um, component of that operation over to our domestic police. Um, so that is the difference, whereas the FBI, mm. as I understand it, can actually enact um, an arrest. Um, but in the context of MI6, uh, our UK foreign um, intelligence um, capability, um, we have no power of arrests. And um, also one has to remember in terms of what we do overseas, um, uh, by very nature of what we do, we are designed to break laws. Um, we operate overseas, we break other countries' laws because espionage is um, illegal in most countries in the world. So um, we're on the other side of the fence in, in the context of legalities. Well, and that, and that brings up another interesting question. It, um, from my understanding, the CIA has like a non-official cover or knock and yep. a um, diplomatic cover. Like, you know, sorry, yeah. they're working out of the agency. They are um, legitimate. Now, I've heard you in other interviews, and you were stating that if you were found out or caught in some of your missions, you face the potential of, at best, a life sentence, at worst, um, execution. So I'm going yeah. to guess that maybe you did not have a diplomatic cover, but I don't want to assume. Yeah, so different covers, depending on the, the type of operation mission. Um by partly by design, but also partly by default, I found myself in a position where dip diplomatic cover was not available to me. And um, very similar to the knots, um, that meant that um, things I, would do, I was doing, um, if it went wrong, I was on my own. Um, and that was made very clear from, from the outset. Um, so I did it with eyes wide open, but that, uh, that was the nature of the job. It was a yo-yo, would be what it's called. You're on your own. Uh, well, I haven't heard that, that phrase, but yes, that sums it up, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is um, interesting on this. Now, from what I understand, you had fun with aliases. Yeah. And carried as many as 14 or 15 at a time. I'm curious, because you've made it a point in interviews talking about how you had to not only know who the hell you were name-wise, but a backstory. So I've got a few questions with that. Like, one, did you try to have the same first name of Matthew? Because I've had many undercover agents, and they do try mm. to keep the same first name, same last initial if possible. I'm curious if you followed that kind of thread. No, I, I never did. Um, I don't, to my knowledge, think there was uh, there were any blocks to me doing that. Um, but I just felt um, it was quite important to have a completely different identity, a different name. Um, hmm. So obviously, uh, so that meant first name and, and last name. Um, so the aliases I had um, at peak 14, um, they were all completely different identities. Okay, now where I wanted to go with my imagination with some of this is that when you're dealing with people, and I've heard you in a couple of interviews, so... It, I can already sort of answer my own question because I mean, this is the nicest way, but you're pretty cagey. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm listening and I'm thinking when you're facing people and having to deal with a backstory or whatever it is in an encounter, are you constantly using elicitation on the person you're speaking with 
so they don't realize that you're suddenly asking more of the questions they are asking? Um, it can be that situation. In, in just taking a step back, in terms of the actual cover itself, the cover, the depth of cover would very much depend upon the nature of the operation. So. <clears throat> Um, uh, sometimes it really would be a raft of, of data that one would have to go armed with before one even got on a plane. Other times it would be the basics, but even the basics would be quite in depth. It wasn't just a case of passport and credit card, and off we go. It would have to, you'd have to have a full identity, um, uh, including things like schooling and, and friendships and, and university, etc. Um, but if um, one got into a, an uncomfortable situation where you thought somebody was perhaps probing too much, you didn't really have the the, um, the backstory to, to um, protect yourself in that situation, then yeah, very naturally you'd have to go on the front foot and uh, think very fast and uh, think with um, a large degree of deflection. Now, with the identities, and that makes sense too, because I'm guessing both identities and missions that some would be intense and long. Some would be just like literally 10, 20 minutes, a quick encounter, make a meeting, do a drop, what, you know, whatever, some small yeah. thing. Were the identities like that too? Like one identity was very thin. Like I'm, I'm just a waiter who's tired trying to get home from work versus yeah. a full blown out. Of, you know, like something you can move to very quickly. Typically, um, the aliases, the identities, would have to be thought through um, quite considerably because, just simply because of the overseas nature of the job. So um, even if it was a very quick job, just meeting somebody in a uh, nearby foreign country, for example, that would still involve travel and getting through airports or whatever transportation port. Um, and so you would still need things because one of the, the fears in, in terms of operating under alias is not just um, the potential threat from a hostile foreign security service, um, but it's also um, just chance accidents going through immigration on an airport or whatever, or somebody by chance who said, oh, yes, I went to the same school or same university or whatever, and you have to then strike up a conversation with somebody it's not your enemy or any potential problem, but could cause you problems if you um, were not um, able to talk to them. So even even a quick job still requires a degree of uh, thought. How about um, language? Uh, were you are you a polyglot? No, I wasn't. Um, some some of my colleagues were, but typically the way that it operated in MI six, which <coughs> very much parallels the system in our Foreign and Commonwealth um, Office, our diplomatic service, is that if you were posted overseas for a protracted period of time, typically three years, um, then you would go on a language course before that. Um, and that language course would be about a year, and it would be one-to-one. -one. Um, so there were no um, requirements when I joined to have a certain language um, that might have changed a bit in, in recent years, but certainly not when I joined, um, because they had the view that um, um, they would train you up. If you needed a language for um, operational reasons, then um, they'd give that to you. Okay, now how about culture? Because you know, I, I'm thinking, you know, a lot of this I'm thinking for myself, right? But I, I can't go to certain places. I'm going to stick out. 
I do not look like I'm going to fit in the native environment of that location. I have very yeah. distinct look, things like that. Um, how did you do it? If you're not really, really fluent uh, on a language necessarily, did you just go to places and, and mingle with expat areas and, and go in that regard? Or, right. I mean, how would you infiltrate? Um, the answer to that I have to be a little bit careful with because it, it very much impinges upon the type of cover that typically I use um, when deployed overseas. Um, but no, I mean, what I can say is no, I never mingled with or rarely mingled with expats. Um, so um, the people I met were all foreign nationals. That was the nature of my job. Um, it happened that the people I, were in, I was interested in um, were people who typically had um, a degree of uh, fluency in English um, and that was symptomatic of who they were and the types of positions they were working in. Okay, okay. So uh, <laughs> that makes sense. But you can see where the question's uh, originating. Course. Yeah. Now, this also makes me wonder. Um, I have not had an opportunity to check out your books. They look fascinating. But researching ahead of time on it, you seem to be writing as much or more about the CIA as you are MI6. Is there a reason that you are choosing to have your characters you know, be CIA versus MI6? No, I mean, my latter books, my, my Ben Science series, um, the, the CIA features less in that series, but in my Spycatcher series, which are my first nine novels, um, yeah, the CIA featured a lot more, and that was really um, because um, I wanted to make the novels very international and, and have um, and bring in America um, into the context of the work that uh, the, the, the actual storyline. Um, a, a lot of which actually wasn't based in, in the States. It was based in places like Europe, or the Middle East, or, or elsewhere. Um, and also, I, I just, again, as, as an author, the, these things suddenly just crop up. I, I then um, created um, two or three characters that I actually really liked who happened to be CIA operatives. And then I decided to stick with them because I like the characters. If, so with all due respect to the CIA and the rest, it wasn't really that I was trying to hammer home a point there at all. It was more I, I, I just warmed to the characters. And also, I, I didn't really want to, to make my novels um, sort of thoroughbred British spy novels. Um, there's some great authors who operate in that sphere. Um, I wanted to, to broaden it out a little bit from that. I didn't know if it was maybe because you could speculate on what a CIA agent would do without revealing actual techniques because you don't know completely everything. So it kind of gave you a little bit of a buffer to where you could BS a little bit more. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's a very good point. I suppose then, you know, talking about the CIA, I have tremendous latitude because who knows. Um, but uh, it was, no, that wasn't a deliberate um, objective, no. Okay. <laughs> now, you joined MI6, what was it, 1993 or four, somewhere in those whereabouts? 1996. 96. Oh, 96. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you you may not have had the same overlap. I've, I've had a CIA um, officer, by the way, they're very clear. It's officer, not agent. Everybody take note, yeah. please. Officer. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, um, 
he complained about the early days of the CIA, especially in the 90s, of having to deal with the cocktail circuit, he called it, which was the Cold War hangovers, and then how everything was shifting to modern terrorism, and that there was kind of a, a little bit of friction. Did you have anything like that where it's like, you know, kind of uh, being at sea there for a little bit? No, um, no I, I, I didn't have that experience at all. Um, so there was no, um, no real sort of cocktail circuit at all. I don't, I'm just thinking through now, I don't think I was ever in a situation like that. Um, and when I joined, obviously, after the, the end of the Cold War, um, there were very there were many different priorities. Uh, uh, terrorism was one of them, although I didn't um, particularly focus on that. Um, I was focused more on rogue states, states the um, senior echelons of rogue states. Um, and so my work in that respect was um, very different from the slow burn of the Cold War and very different from the team effort, um, reactive uh, approach to counterterrorism work. Um, So I I fell completely outside of that in in terms of what I was doing. Um, And it was was absolutely fascinating and and extremely complex, but um, hanging around um, embassy um, cocktail party uh, party circuits, that's uh, no experience of that whatsoever. And I don't really think it would have been my thing particularly either. I think it was talking mostly the attitude that, you know, is all, you know, a very cold war minded at a, uh, at a, at yeah. A no, um, it was, um, I mean, I, I don't, I would imagine it is the same in the States. Um, but, but in the UK, um, people have a, a sort of, uh, perhaps a misconception that MI6 officers and other intelligence officers just go out and, and do what they like. Um, and if they get good information, good secrets or whatever, they bring back. And um, But the, um, the reality is very different. The, the, the likes of MI6 are given very clear objectives that are laid down um, by governments in, in the guise of an organization called the Joint Intelligence Committee. Uh, and they set objectives for MI6 every year. Um, and MI6 has to try to fulfill those objectives, uh, those objectives being requirements. The government wants to know the, the requirements of the day or the year. Where MI6 has complete latitude is how it obtains those secrets, um, how it fulfills um, those objectives. Um, so um, the concept of um, hanging around in a sort of Cold War-esque um, buzzy spy type environment in, I don't know, Vienna or somewhere like that, hoping to pick up tittle tattle. Um, that really wouldn't have washed. Um, in terms there it goes. My cover is ruined. I, you know, I had a, a friend of mine create a great thumbnail. You're the real James Bond and you're not hanging out in um, Monaco or whatever and gambling. <sighs> Peace. Uh, hang up. Never mind. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Question from the chat, though. I like this. What are considered rogue states? So rogue states, uh, and obviously the definition varies, again, year on year, depending on what the issue um, is, um, but really states that um, are unwilling or potentially unwilling to to engage 
<clears throat> in what would be seen as mature politics, mature uh, diplomacy, um, dialogue with other states. Um, so, um, and, and the definition and the categorization does ebb and flow depending on where states are in their in their processes. So one could look at states that aren't democratic, for example, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're a rogue state if they're stable. Um, so it's really looking at stability, but also potential aggression outside of their borders. Um, volatility um, is a key component of that. Um, I could I could cite some states that come in, you know, uh, into that category, but perhaps I'll be a little bit. Uh, I'm guessing. I'm guessing it's a loaded question because it's very interpretive, right? I mean, something yeah. could, someone could be called a rogue state and that state could say, no, I'm just not bending to the knee of, you know, whatever. It, it You know, it's, there's some personality issues and I'm, I'm not saying one way or another, but yeah. just guessing that it's a touchy question. It's a touchy uh, question and, and it's a laud- laudable observation as well because it's, um, it's in the eye of the beholder. Um, mm-hmm. So um, our definition of a rogue state, I mean, some states may well take offense at that. And then there are those that um, really could um, uh, question it legitimately. Um, for example, and I will name a state here, for example, is China a rogue state? Um, in many respects, it's, um, it's stable. It's not trying to spill over its borders. Um, although it could be argued perhaps from a, a cyber attack perspective, increasingly it is. Um, but from a land grab perspective, it's not. So there are states that could legitimately challenge that. But nevertheless, at the same time, China is a great concern um, because of its power and um, sure. a very different political system, structure and history. Um, How about so North Korea? Are- I mean, I'm, g- I'm going to go one deeper because... That one to me is an even harder question, right? North Korea is somewhat stable, but they're definitely not friendly. They definitely are doing cyber attacks. They, but yeah. they're not trying to, you know, take over the country next to them necessarily. They kind of flail about. That would be to me a hard question. If they're yeah, with, with the exception that uh, it's public knowledge that North Korea um, has to some extent nuclear capability. Um, and that is the the key concern there. Okay, and, and sorry to interrupt. I was just trying to. No, 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 no. yeah, yeah. Um, and and you see, and that's where I get it gets hard too, because I think some people might consider Pakistan borderline. Some people might consider. Yeah, know, it, it's. Um, it, it is, as I say, in the eye of the beholder, and I would be, I wouldn't be surprised uh, looking at the categorization of rogue states. If, for example, um, put side by side, if, for example, the United States had some states that it thought were rogue and we thought weren't and and vice versa. So it's not a universal definition. Um, And and ultimately, as with the likes of the CIA, the likes of MI6, first first and foremost, our responsibility is to Great Britain and then to to its allies. And the CIA's... your phrase mature politics, though, kind of made me laugh a little bit because I was thinking, okay, so those technically are the ones who aren't playing ball, first off. Because mature sort of implies like, oh, well, they're not willing to sit down and, and talk because they, you know. 
some of it just seems you know very 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 subjective and i i don't don't want to go deep into it but it it is kind of a, a funny um yeah, no, it, but I don't think anybody's anybody's pretending it's not subjective. Um, at the end of the day, any any government of any power has to make subjective decisions based upon their their, their primary responsibility, which is the protection of the country they serve. Um, so it is subjective. It's um, who do we think is threatening us or our neighbours or our friends? I mean, and then that you know that is uh, very much a subjective um, um, definition and conclusion. Um, but every country has to start somewhere. Um, so we can't, uh, for example, in Britain, we can't ask our dear neighbour France to say, are we right on this? Do we think that XYZ countries are a threat to us? We make our own decisions, just as the state does about its borders, etc. So subjective, yes, but necessary. Fair enough. Now, okay, back, back to when you went in. Um, the MI6, or MI6 did not officially exist until 1994 which yeah. i'm kind of yeah. laughing about because i've heard of mi6 you know i'm you know i was born in 1970 so i managed to hear about mi6 my whole life but it apparently did not officially exist until two years before he went in yeah did that lead to certain changes that you saw happening because it was real versus imaginary let's say no the, the only um real change for us was that we had um, a very visible headquarters in, in Vauxhall on, on the um, south bank of the River Thames. Um, uh, very famous now because it's been in the Bond movies, etc. Um, and um, whereas before it was a rather down at the heel, high-rise 1950s block, um, uh, further in South London, very anonymous. Um, so that was a, a big change, just having that visibility. But actually, internally within the organization itself, no, I mean, it was still very much um, uh, an organization of, of complete secrecy um, and uh, no desire to step out of the shadows whatsoever. Um, so my experience in the organization was that um, the, the fact that it was, as it's called, public, publicly avowed in '94 made absolutely no difference whatsoever. That was just purely political. Um, the only difference um, that it made, I think, subsequently, but not straight away, was in terms of the recruitment process for new applicants coming in, um, whereby they had the ability to um, openly apply to um, MI6, um, the Secret Intelligence Service. Whereas when I went through the process, there was no open application at all. Okay, and <laughs> curious. Um, I, I I've got to be mocking, but have you seen the the recent recruitment ads for the CIA? No, I haven't. Enlighten me. Um, they're shall we say very woke. Okay. Um, very inclusive. Yeah, they're very focused on on. Shall we say not mission oriented things you know in my mind I, I was in the army for a little bit and i think you know things yeah. like mission stopping is it's more about um how many people where you know have a, a rainbow flag and how many people are doing this and doing that yeah and i'm i'm wondering if um if you've heard of mi6 is that happening over there or are we just leading the way <laughs> <laughs> 
No, my understanding is that MI6 is is doing very similar in terms of it, it places a huge emphasis on on um, being, for example, a equal opportunities employer. <clears throat> Apparently, it's, it's been um, rated, I think, as one of the top ten employers um, within the UK on that basis. Um, so diversity um, is hugely important for the organisation and. and one of the key drivers for that, apart from everything else, apart from the fact that it's important, one of the key drivers for that is that MI6 has to reflect the society it works in. Um, and so um, it's all well and good putting chaps like me going out there, but also well, you've got to put other people. Um, so we've always had, MI6 has always had pre-woke and all of that. It's always had... Um, a very open attitude to who it gets in. All it wants are the right people for the job. You know, it doesn't matter what shape and size they are. It, it wants, you know, it wants certain people that they can put out into the field. Um, so that culture. But it's about the job, right? It's about yeah, the job. So, I mean, looked at cynic, looked at cynically. It, it's it's because there's a overriding imperative to have that. That. Uh, front-facing diversity as opposed to some nice-to-have um, culture type of thing. But then that's not a bad thing. Um, if it's driving that um, that kind of culture, then uh, so be it. Okay, fair enough. And my, my big issue is when you focus so much on the quantity of roles versus the mission at hand, that that troubles me. I feel like, yeah, you hire whomever is good at whatever it is. It doesn't matter who they are or what they are. Yeah. And that's a, you know, and they may look very odd. They may be very completely different. That's awesome. Cool. Bring them in. But to focus and say, oh, I need to find more of those who look that specific way or act yeah, okay. that that is troublesome. Yeah. So, I, I mean, obviously, I, I can't comment with authority on, on the U.S. system for intelligence <laughs> rec recruitment, but... In the UK, what I can say with authority is <clears throat> that standards have not been dropped. Um, so <clears throat> even if there was a, uh, a quota or whatever, positive discrimination is called, or whatever, that wouldn't make uh, an iota of difference. Um, the standards remain the same. Hmm. Okay. Um, got Gavin here. <laughs> Gavin's wondering, talking of Legoland, apparently your headquarters is called Legoland as well, as a nickname. <laughs> I've heard it called that, yes, yeah, yeah. He's saying that uh, not too long ago, the uh, plans got stolen from the construction company doing some alterations work. Do you know if they were ever recovered? Um, I don't, actually. I didn't even know they got stolen, but I mean, whoever stole them... I think would have been thoroughly disappointed because um, inside, I mean, it looks somewhat um, um, interesting from the outside, but inside um, it's just a series of offices, very bare offices and um, um, certainly not um, salubrious or um, secret tunnels or anything at all in there. Oh, that's boring. So nothing particularly interesting. Um, so unless somebody stole it to look at the the you know the, the structural fortifications and everything else like that. But uh, that aside, I can't see that there would have been a huge amount of value to us. Well, that's that's kind of boring. All right, I want to jump back into um, 
your work or clandestine work. Um, and this is just really, really fascinating to me as a whole. Uh, to give me an idea, I've had um, FBI undercover on uh, who's invaded or like infiltrated animal rights organizations, eco-terrorists, you know, blowing up, you know, that kind of stuff. I had uh, Mike Levine on, and Mike Levine was a major drug runner, undercover DEA, you know, hung out yeah. with all the major figures. And that I've had Jack Barsky on, who's one of my favorite all-time guests. He is a KGB mole who lived in the United States undetected for 16 years. Yeah. And um, an American. And others, you know, who have done it, you know, um, and I'm curious because especially talking to him, there's a lot of stress involved. And I don't know if your undercover work is shorter or longer or what, but the most extreme stress was Jack in some ways. And he talked about how he wished a, a counselor or somebody who could actually work with him or help him because he was quite literally a bigamist. He yeah. had. You know, full family here, full family in East Germany, and almost a complete split yeah. identity. And to lesser degrees, I had that with the you know, FBI who went undercover. I'm wondering, did did any of this get to you? No, it didn't. Uh, and I must carry out that my experience compared to the two examples you've just given was different. Um, so I didn't, for example, work in a situation where I was deep undercover for years at a time, infiltrating an organization or a country, indeed, um, living a different life, all of that. Um, my um, the Typically, the kind of work that I did would be going into a scenario, um, often repeatedly um, under alias, um, so presenting myself as somebody else with all the paraphernalia and background to back it up, <laughs> meeting in um, foreign countries, but ultimately then getting on a plane and coming home um, after a period of time. Um, so slightly different, but nevertheless, um, my the, the nature of my work um, was, uh, was frenetic, um, I think it's fair to say. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of uh, our discussion that um, I had 14 aliases at peak. Um, and it wasn't just a case of each operation, each mission would have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then move on to the next one. Um, very typically, there would be lots and lots of overlaps, different operations at different stages. Um, and so it really was a case of spinning plates in terms of um, the nature of the job. And I estimated at one point that um, I was really getting on a plane and being overseas, probably upwards of about 70 to 80 percent of my time. Um, so it was extremely intense. But in terms of the stress, um, it's interesting looking back at it now. Um, I'm, I've got two years on you. I'm, I'm 52. And um, it's... Um, and I look back, and I think, my goodness me, I do pause for thought now um, mm. when I look back at those days. Um, but at the time, it was a job to do. And, and also, it was that it was exhilarating. It was exciting. 
Um, and I was very focused in terms of what I was doing. So I never had the sensation of, for example, coming back to London, which was typically always where I'd come back to. I never had the situation of coming back and then decompressing, feeling like it was a nervous wreck or requiring counseling or whatever. Um, it was just constant and all the rest of it. Um, but that's not to say um, that other people um, don't suffer in, in that respect. I think um, um, it does very much depend upon the individual. What about your actual identity? I mean, did your friends and neighbors know that, hi, this is Matthew, I am uh, I work for MI6, or were you Matthew the businessman? Um, my friends um, and, uh, well, certainly not my neighbors, but my friends, even, even my immediate family at first, um, weren't permitted to know. There was a whole process whereby one had to had to formally request um, um, uh, the possibility of a, a declaration, um, uh, and that included my parents. Um, so there was a period of time when my parents didn't know, my, my, my um, um, broader family didn't know, uh, and certainly my close friends didn't know. Um, but once they were permitted, and once I was allowed to disclose what I did, um, that was on the back of very intensive vetting um, before I was given the permission to go ahead and do that. Um, and it did kind of make it a bit easier because they then backed off and I didn't have to um, lie to uh, my nearest and dearest um, because that's what I was doing before. Well, what did they, can you say what you said you did? I mean, since obviously we know you're MI6, saying if, you know, what was your basic cover? Oh, um, I was a diplomat, and um, you know, I was doing something. It could be anything. It could be I was doing negotiations uh, in Brussels with the United, you know, with the European Union or United Nations or whatever it was. Um, but um, um, yeah, that was the uh, the fig leaf cover. Um, so, um, yeah. oh God, come on now, you're a novelist. Now tell me, if I was supposed to do that, I would make up all. Oh, kinds of goofy stuff all kinds yeah, you, you had to have some fun with that please tell me yeah but eric i'm, I'm not going to comment on that am i <laughs> the answer is yes of course but, yeah. <laughs> come on what, what would be one ridiculous story that you claim that you're doing obviously is a lie now i mean it's out but what would be one ridiculous story come on that'd be funny um Oh, uh, yeah, um, not really ridiculous so much as just more sort of playful. Um, um, but um, yeah, I, I once um, pretended that I, I was, um, by profession, I was a pig farmer and I was looking to expand agriculturally into a certain sector of the world and uh, the rest of it. So, <laughs> yeah, so uh, so I had to brush up on pigs. <laughs> oh my God! That's that's what are you going to get from me on that? <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, there you go. There you go. Oh, that's too funny. Um, I'm going to jump back to Jack Barsky and on this because I'm curious. One, I heard a rumor that you're only allow, or you may only be allowed to do undercover for so long. That you know, there's kind of like some sort of in by dates is is there any truth to that 
Um, so um, looked after from from the UK. Um, yes. There's no hard and fast um, rule on that. They do try to have a system whereby um, you're brought um, back to, for example, London, and then you'll have a posting, as they call it, in London. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe for, from more of a managerial perspective or working in the security division we mentioned earlier or something or training or whatever it is. And they do that deliberately to try and mix it up a little bit so that you have, um, you're not constantly out in the field. But um, again, it's, it's not hard and fast and um, the nature of the job is what it is. And if there's an imperative to continue doing what you're doing, then you do that. Um, providing it's um, agreed mutually and there aren't any negatives as, as a result of that. One negative being, for example, <clears throat> that the offset can't do it anymore or is suffering. Um, mm -hmm. Then then they, the organisation would have a duty of care uh, and would, as far as possible, try and bring that person back. Okay, I brought that up because it's funny. I have a different view of things. Like... Um... I consider Jack Barsky was a patriot. Yeah. He might have been working for the other guys. You know, I'm, I'm a yeah, yeah. Cold War baby, but, you know, he was working for his country. I was working for, you know, so yeah. I, I actually can appreciate that. But he was saying that in Moscow, they and the KGB, they essentially had kind of a, a loose base rule of 10 years. And the thing was, as you put it, that there's like an expiration date. Yeah. You can't trust a spy after 10 years. And it was just a, a matter of, I guess I would say that they'd go NATO yeah. eventually over that time. And I didn't know if you've heard anything about that or had um, no, no, not in that context. Um, I've not heard of that. I, I think, um, so the operations that, that I was working on and uh, involved in, um, that they weren't, 10 plus year operations they were i mean some were years but but certainly not that duration and certainly not of that nature where you are by all accounts uh, a russian living as an american or whatever that that's um, yeah. that's my experience but i would imagine in, in that kind of situation there would be um, a period of time whereby they have to make a decision um bring that person back or completely cut ties altogether um, but uh, continuing that uh, double life, I think, would take its toll after a period of time. Hmm. Okay. Now, this one, I'm probably going to get you dancing on a pen. So let me see. Um, huh. I've been told that there are spotters in classrooms, or at least there's been spotters in, in classrooms who are MI6. Like in yeah. universities, there would be at least one or two operatives who are working yeah. in there looking for talent yeah. is was that the case and is that the case yes um i'll see directly on that yes it is um and so when i went through when i was in the process of joining um mi6 and um, that is precisely how i entered the service and because i was talent spotted um, by one of my professors at university and um particularly back then because there was no open application um process available to people um the service mi6 was was almost totally reliant on talent spotters typically spread about around uh, universities in the uk and elsewhere um 
certain other places as well, the military and uh, other organisations, um, the City of London. <clears throat> but the universities were the, the prime um, talent spotting hunting ground uh, for the service. Um, and I would imagine that is still continuing, despite the fact that one can openly apply now. I think that's probably still continuing, not least because open applications are fine, but it, it does require a bit of, um, still requires a bit of um, uh, uh, recommendations attached to it. So it carries a lot more weight, for example, if a university talent spotter said, look, I've been watching this person unbeknownst to them, I've been watching them for a year or two years or whatever, um, and I actually think they're worthy of your attention. Um, so I think probably that, that system is still in place. And I guess um, it, it's, it's prevalent in the U.S. as well. Interesting. Well, and I would argue, too, that the whole CIA, for one, you guys created the CIA. Yes. With the OSS. I mean, yes. ultimately, so the the parallels have to be pretty strong there, and it came out of a lot of Ivy League schools. They yeah. really like universities, and they really like legacy. Like, if somebody's father was CIA, then odds are much higher that the son will be CIA, sister, brother, right down the line. And I'm yeah. I'm just guessing that you know some of that because these are. I mean, Britain, I consider to be kind of a traditional country with long legacy, family, things, some traditions like that. Would that be fair? Yeah, but I, I know where you're going with this. And it's interesting, though, hearing you talk about the, the experience in the States because uh, my knowledge and my experience in the UK and in the context of the secret world, um, it's actually quite different that there wasn't that family of spies, the father, the grandfather, or whatever, um, aunts, uncles, etc. There wasn't really that type of um, legacy going on. Um, it was very much that they were looking for individuals, and it wasn't it wasn't who you were or where you came from or whatever. There was no doubt if one goes back in history, MI six history, probably. Um, a disproportionate amount of people who went to Eton Harrow public schools and then went on to Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge. But that's changed dramatically, um, even, in my, even in my lifetime. Um, so, I mean, the, your, your phrase about Britain being traditional, I would agree with that. But also Britain has a massive other component to it, which is its contrarian. Um, some might say almost eccentric or, or whatever, but use whatever label one wants. It also has that sort of mischievous component to it, um, which um, when it filters down into um, the likes of MI6, um, and that very much applies. So you could be the son of, I don't know, the greatest spy that ever lived in the Cold War, but MI6 wouldn't give a monkey's about that. You're starting from scratch. So that's the way it works. So similar to your humor. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very. Okay. Um, continuing with the um, spotters in the school, we have, I've done like um, three episodes with a, a friend of mine, Mark Grobert, and just talking about infiltration of uh, CIA, because they have infiltrated a lot of industry here. And this includes CIA in Hollywood. 
where they recruit movies to make them look good and they actually actually get involved with the writing and producing and you know it's on the sly there are cia who are shall we say working in the news and then we have the family that i was just talking about does mi6 have the same tentacles running throughout the country like that uh um uh, it's um difficult question for me to answer um satisfactorily um okay. but certainly um the likes of li6 um will certainly have connections um in for example the media um and um uh, related um industries um so connections human connections in particular are, are vital it's the bloodstream of the uh, of the organization um, li6 um, so that is in place, but again, the, in terms of MI6 and how it operates in the UK, there are laws that do apply there in terms of what MI6 can do and what it can't do, um, and it does need to get very uh, strict approval before it can do things. So MI6, for example, can't suddenly come up with a great idea and um, infiltrate Pinewood Studios or whatever and come up with our equivalent of a movie like Argo, for example, or similar. Um, I don't think we'd get away with that. So you can't, um, let's say, buy Animal Farm from George Orwell's widow and then turn it into a movie yourselves, like the CIA. I mean, and... <laughs> Anything, anything is possible. All I can say is it. I, I've not seen it happen. But. Okay, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I, and also, I, I, I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so, I am somewhat. I'm, I'm trying to work out what the end game would be from the from the CIA's uh, perspective. Recruitment. Well, it's, it's literally it's, recruitment because they it, were dragged through the mud with Parallax View and movie after movie, especially in the early seventies, that the CIA was a bunch of duplicitous killers and things like that, and it really wasn't helpful for their image they wanted to clean up their image well yeah i mean i i, I don't know enough about that um mi6 hasn't suffered from that but then again mi6 um yes it's public knowledge and there's largely public knowledge um uh, thanks to the likes of the bomb movies and similar um but um for the most part it, it it's fairly tight-lipped and, and doesn't like the same degree of profile. I'm sure the CI doesn't either, to, but it's still the CI is still far more visible um, in the public consciousness than, than MI6 is. So we don't, I suspect, have the same problem with recruitment. And in fact, it, my understanding is is the opposite. That MI6 is getting inundated with applications. Um, so, um, but maybe that is simply reflective of the fact that they don't have the same visibility or indeed this therefore the same amount of potential negative press at times cultural differences too i think i mean i i um, generally yeah. think of british as more stiff upper lip and i i'm I, it's generalization but uh, americans tend to be and again very stereotypical but we can be a little more grandiose a little bit more flashy 
I'll give you um, uh, uh, an anecdote on that, the personal anecdote, <clears throat> which applies to my books. When I was um, first published uh, 10 years ago, um, I had a US publisher in you know, HarperCollins, a UK publisher in Orion. Um, because of my background, it all had to be formally treated. I had to get formal approval from MI6. There's a whole process there. And it was very unusual because I was the first um, MI6 officer to write fiction since Le Carre and before him, Graham Greene. Uh, there just weren't ex-spies, MI6 spies writing fiction at all. So it was an unusual situation. And doubly so for me because I had two two publishing houses and two editors who had very different styles. My U.S. editor was very much imbued, obviously, he was American, very much imbued in how things were done in the States, which was, from his experience, a lot more open, a lot more talkative in terms of talking to people from that world, etc. My U.K. editor, a British chap, um, far more... Um, familiar with working with our UK Ministry of Defence, for example, and, and similar special forces, etc. Uh, he kind of knew the problem that we were facing because in the UK, unlike in the American system, in the UK, it's um, it's almost the case that it's just not done. We don't break ranks. We don't talk about it. And uh, so it's trying to square, you mentioned culture earlier, and it's a very... Um, pertinent uh, word because we were trying to square two almost different cultural approaches to this mm -hmm. new new thing which was me writing a book about and the fact that I was a spy and this and the other and uh, so it was quite an interesting process with my American editor saying well that's okay we get those XCIA guys over here talking you know, and all the rest of it and then my UK editor saying yeah but we don't over here uh, with XMI6 guys. So it, it is that cultural difference, call it stiff upper lip or whatever it is, um, is certainly prevalent. More circumspect. Now, I would argue too, that would be another reason that you might write more CIA stuff too, because it gives you a little bit of a license to be brighter or bolder or, you know, back and forth and play it both ways. Yeah, yeah, deflection. Um, but, but no, as I say, that that, that wasn't my motivating factor um, at all. And my most recent books, um, I, I really, my main character is a, a former senior MI6 officer. And uh, so I write about that. Um, and really, I, I try to drill down into what makes him tick and the mindset of a spy, and in particular, based on my experience, the mindset of MI6 officers uh, and the spies, the foreign nationals they work with. Um, and so that's my approach to it. So I'm not shying away from the subjects and uh, because I have to get my books vetted and all the rest of it. If there's any problems, then stuff's taken out. So that's fine. Well, it's interesting when you're talking about mindset and... We, we were kind of talking before, but um, you had brought up uh, how the intelligence agencies do not typically recruit psychologists or people in the psychology field. Yeah. Um, can you explain why that might be? Um, well, the, it's, it, well, largely down to the nature of being an intelligence officer, um, often dealing it in very dynamic and fluid situations. Um, uh, requiring there's an imperative, and that, and that is either trying to recruit somebody to um, spy on their country, become a traitor, 
um, or, or similar related work. Um, and that's, in the context of MI6, um, the, phrase, the, the word that was often used, or phrased, was using one's antennae um, uh, when trying to assess an individual. Um, and in trying to make that assessment, that would very often have to be an extremely rapid um, process that almost felt quite instinctual. Um, in, in fact, it was probably an extremely rapid process of deductive reasoning. Um, but um, it was typically making an assessment of somebody who's just walked into a room, has spoken a few lines or whatever. Um, and I think um, in terms of then uh, looking at psychologists and saying, would they make good spies? Um, it's, it would be a difficult one because psychologists operate in a different sphere that, that they have time to make their uh, analysis of an individual. And they're making that analysis in a very different controlled environment. It could be, it could be a clinic or a therapy room or whatever and over a period of time. Um, and of course, they're making an analysis which then can be challenged because the profession of psychology has different theories that are evolving. And as an intelligence officer, you don't have that luxury. You've really got to get to the heart of the matter pretty quickly. Um, in the same way, for example, that um, um, junior doctors are encouraged by their mentors to be able to very quickly um, make um, assessments of somebody who walks into their surgery, a patient who walks into their surgery, and make an assessment within seconds of that person walking through the door of their, their surgery. Um, and if, if you ask the doctor, well, how did you know he or she had that, or how did you suspect, probably the doctor wouldn't be able to give you a, um, a coherent answer to that, but it was just bang, that's it. Um, as, an, as an IO, as an intelligence officer, got to really get to that. Now, it doesn't mean you've got the whole picture of that person, um, but you've got to get the, the components of them that could be of interest to you. Um, and when, uh, uh, as an intelligence officer, when we look at individuals, before we even make what we call an approach to them, when we look at uh, a potential target, as we call it, we're looking for two key, key things. Um, the first is what access do they have? So access is a key question. Uh, do they have access to secrets that we want? Mm. If the answer to that is yes, then the second key component is motivation. What motivates that person? Um, and that, the answer to that can be a raft of different things, depending upon the individual. Is that like race? Um, yeah, we didn't use that, um, that acronym, but um, it, it can be a, a number of different things. So it could be money, it could be ideology. Um, it could be um, it could be uh, domestic reasons, personal reasons. It could be a raft of different things. And, and the key thing was trying to ascertain what hook um, one could uh, use to actually get alongside that person and motivate that person. So going back to your point about psychologists and all the rest of it, we're looking at it from a very uh, specific um, angle um, through a very specific prism. And we've got to make that decision very accurately and very quickly. Um, and certainly my experience um, in MI6 was that um, psychologists and, and their approach to the analysis of human beings, that wouldn't sit very easily with the nature of the job.
Okay, so here, um, let me see. Here, here I think um, it's very popular, like Myers-Briggs. Uh, a lot of, um, I think, CIA people and stuff like that, where they could just say, this person is an INTJ, or, you know what, just very rapidly look at them and say, well, they're judgmental, but outgoing, you know, like, I hate to say surfacy, but I'm guessing with you, you did, you've stated that you didn't have time. And maybe that's it. It's like diagnosing somebody as a narcissist. While that's nice to know, it wouldn't necessarily help you. And it may not even be relevant. Like I'm sure that you worked with many narcissists and they were very yeah. helpful to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I've worked with people that you would, if you knew what they'd done, you would, you'd cross the street if you saw them coming towards you. But, you know, uh, in person, charming, um, sophisticated, all the rest of it. Um, I happen to know their backstory. Um, but, um, yeah, I had to, be, um, had to be with them. So that's it. So you're cognizant of that. But um, the, 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 the points you made about um, people you spoke to at the CIA, etc., Sometimes it would be the most interesting little snippets you learn about somebody. You thought that could be quite interesting. Um, um, just something that reveals something about their character. And again, it, it's very difficult to actually categorize it um, because when you're meeting somebody, uh, well, typically you're applying all of your senses. Um, so it's not just what's coming out of that person's mouth. It's how they're looking and... Um, the, the sounds around them, the context, the reason they're in the same room or whatever situation they're in. Um, and as somebody who's close to them, um, you, you're sort of analyzing that whole rap. Um, and, um, mm -hmm. and so it's not a case of some kind of tick box. This person is gregarious. This person is introverted or this person is certainly other. You're looking for something a little bit more um, in terms of something interesting. Well, there's three of you anyway when you think about it, right? I mean, there's you, the other person, and then the two of you together make another identity yeah. because of whatever chemistry you have or don't have, you know, very quick thing. So I'm guessing it's very uh, fluid. Like as you're talking, how they're reacting is going to shape very much which way you go. Okay. Are they more auditory? Are they more visual? Are they more, you know, I, and I'm guessing that you, with your training or whatever, it's instinctive or am I completely off base? No, a lot of it is instinctive, um, and uh, quite why. I mean, instinctive. I mean, that's a very dangerous word because well, what's the origin of, of instinct in that respect? But sure, training um, and experience, yeah. or, or upbringing, yeah, a, a number of different things, um, mm -hmm. or just uh, just the nature of your your personality, whatever it is. Um, but uh, the ability to to engage with people and talk to them and learn about them and, and look for different angles. I mean, I, I've had this conversation with people who, um, for example, the people who've never worked in, in um, secret, secret services and said to them uh, an interesting one, an interesting exercise for you to do is people you know in your life or people you just meet in the course of your day-to-day -day, um, existence just ask yourself just one, one question. What is it that motivates that person that you know? And try and come up with a one-line answer to it. You, know, you may have known them for 20, 30, 50 years, whatever it is. 
Just try and come up with a one line. And it's quite an interesting exercise to go through with people you know. What motivates that person? It can be a very nice thing. It can be a very benign, wonderful thing that motivates them, or it could be something else. Um, but it's quite a nice mental exercise to go through. I know it's categorizing, and it's not the whole story. But it's quite nice to actually think, oh, yeah, the, 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 that makes it a little bit more um, understandable um, in terms of that. That makes sense. Well, it's and we do it all the time naturally too. With the, would we trust that person with a secret? Well, that's you know we, we'll tell each other. Oh, don't tell them. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it's kind of a in that regard of you know you can't tell them they're going to do this, but yeah, what motivates them? Oh, well, yeah, that's such and such. Of course, they have that job. They only care about money, or you know, or yeah. this person. Of course, they took that job because they're worried about family. And you yeah. can almost do it in one word, not a, even, not necessarily a sentence half the time. No, no, true enough, true enough. Yeah. Um, so yes, we do it all the time, uh, either consciously or subconsciously. Um, but my point is rather more making it explicit in terms of one's thought processes, oh, like because a lot of people will think, oh, well, no, no. then just ask yourself if you if you want to. So, for example, your your um, example about well, should I share the secret with somebody? then, okay, really hit it over the head and make it simple. Ask yourself before you do that, before, what motivates that that person? And so if they're just interested with the next buck or whatever it is, then or they, they're interested in uh, friends, and that's good, but also it's bad because they can disseminate information because they like it. They like, you know, have you heard this, have you heard that, whatever. So it's quite a good exercise to go through. Um, yeah, if they're interested in fame, even more dangerous. Adulation, etc. Yeah. By the way, I'm not. Yeah, so there go. <laughs> All right. Now, um, to to wrap it up, because I could go on. I mean, I could go on to you know, Gretchen Whitmer, different things, different philosophies. Love to talk to you about informants and thoughts about pain informants and whether they, they ship yeah. things or others, but we just don't have the time. Sure. So I'm going to talk about something really important with you. I think your job traditionally from what I'm guessing is to avoid being noticed, except for the one person or whatever, whom you were trying to communicate. Yeah. Now your job is to promote yourself in the largest possible manner. So how do you reconcile all of your years doing one thing to what you're doing now. And how are you doing? Um, it's, uh, yeah, how do I reconcile it? Um, I mean, the, the one thing is that I write under my own name. Um, mm -hmm. And I have been asked many times, well, why do you do that? And my answer to that was, it was actually quite a, a big thing. When I started out writing, it was a big discussion point with between myself, my agents, and uh, my publishers. Um, but ultimately, I decided to do so because I'd always been operating under other names previously. So I, I maybe somewhat selfishly or stupidly, whatever, decided that actually I finally wanted to do something that could be attributed to my own name. So that was the, the reason behind it. But in terms of coming out of the shadows or whatever phrase one wants to use, um, yeah, it's, it's an unusual process and, and an unusual feeling. And um, even 10 years into being a, an author, um, I'm still not entirely used to it. 
um, I've got somebody who really, really wants me to ask you about Five Eyes, which I believe is just the association with New Zealand, Australia, United States, Britain, and Israel, right? No, Israel, Canada. Canada. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's what you just share intelligence and operations and whatever else with each other? Or? Yeah, it's a very, very close. Um, so, finally, yeah, it's a very close um, allegiance uh, um, um, between those countries, um, whereby they will have, within those five eyes, they will have priority, um, with exceptions, but priority over um, a lot of information um, that will not be disseminated to other allies. Um, so, a very, very close uh, association. Actually, now that I think about it, it's Commonwealth countries plus the U.S. Yes, we let you in. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're such troublemakers. Okay, well, yeah, I don't know which or, or where everybody's going on. And again, we could go on forever. Now, people can find your books, and I definitely want everybody to know that you have the two series. You have the Spycatcher series, which I believe is your first. I, I know, are, you, are those done, or are they just you're going back and forth between them? Not, not done. Um, no, uh, um, yeah, I, I get asked a lot. So the main character of my Spycatcher series is uh, um, MI6 officer called Will Cochrane, and um, people love that character, and I often get asked, you know, you can bring him back and all the rest of it, and. Um, um, in all likelihood, I will at some point, as long as the story is right and then the circumstances are right. Um, um, so, yes, I, I, I may return to that series in some guise or other. Okay, now I think there's seven of those, and they are all on audio. That's why I wanted to bring that up to everyone. Oh, because, yeah. yeah. Uh, like me, I, I literally cannot read books anymore. I just, I, I've... The way my life works and everything, I have to yeah. listen. It's the only yeah. way I can find time, period, because I'm always doing something else, be it programming, be it whatever. Yeah. So it, it is literally, you know, my only option. And then your other series, and yes, everybody, I bugged him earlier about um, Ben Sign, and he needs to get those on Audible so everybody can <laughs> listen. I'll, or work, read. On I'll work on that. Yeah. But Fantastic. And they're all on Audible. Uh, um, they're on Audible for the audio, I know for sure. And I've also found it. Uh, my wife has in Hoopla. It's a library. So uh, they're they're out there. I even saw that one of your books is on Spotify. That was quite interesting. Number yeah. four of a uh, Spycatcher. Yeah. And then Ben Sign, especially the latest. You have one that just came out, right? Yeah, just come out, um, The Spy Thief. Um, that was published um, early this month, uh, early August. Um, so that's the fifth novel in the Ben Science series. Um, so that's uh, just been published in um, ebook and uh, paperback. And it's Amazon exclusive. Amazon exclusive, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, well, fantastic. And really that's where you guys have to look is on audible, um, audible, Amazon, Harper Collins publisher, Instagram. I think you have a page, Facebook, yeah. you don't have a webpage yet. I used that's to have, true. I used to have a webpage and then I, 
how can I put this? I got um, some um, somewhat uh, unwanted attention from certain quarters in the world. So I took that down. But I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn and other things as well. I'm, I'm the most blown ex-spy out there. So I'm, I'm all over the net. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good spot to be in. And you're in good company. So, yeah. Matt, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.